Do we have opinions on pecan or pecan? I was just about to say. I switch between both. I say pecan pie. Yeah. I heard it in a rap song, and that's my basis for pronunciation. <laughs> Same. I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> Wait. It's like butter pecan Puerto Rican. Butter pecan. Puerto Rican. So that's how I. That's oh why God, I pronounce so it pecan pie. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> Very on brand with my yeah. entire existence. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the Yule Fully Young, Ho 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 Hip, and Fala La La Lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello. Are you excited about Christmas? I am. I am really excited. Yeah, the Christmas tree is not only up, it is decorated now. Oh, nice. And we'll get into this later, but I have basically no shopping done. So wow, me neither. not good. <laughs> and what are we drinking today, Zach? So this week we've got uh, a recommendation and actually a concoction from a uh, fan of the show and co-worker and editorial assistant for digital strategy superstar Vivian Cabrera has made uh, Bon Appetit's best masala chai recipe. And she, I asked her why she made it, and she was kind of like, why? Is it bad? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's... I said, yeah, let's let's try it. All right, cheers. cheers. Before we compliment the chef. Yes. Oh, it's very good. It's, like, spicy. Spicy, ginger forward. Yeah, and, like... Perfect for Christmas. I feel like there's, like... Like yes, it's chilies a, in there. It's a warm, it's a warm tea. She said, and it was fun and beautiful to make. All right. Well, thank you so much, Vivian. And who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we're talking with Sister Teresa Alethea. She is a former atheist turned religious sister and the author of "Remember Your Death: Memento Mori Journal." And known by many as Sister Death, uh, she's the founder of the Memento Mori Project, uh, which is an online revival where she offers daily meditations about death and thinking about your own death. Memento Mori is Latin for remember your death. Yeah, and since 2007, she's kept a ceramic skull on her death, and every day she tweets and writes about her meditations on death. Do you guys think about your death ever? Honestly, I am terrified to think about my death or the death of my loved ones because I feel that if I think about it, then I'm going to cause myself to die or people around me to die. So I'm very superstitious about it. Well, I think that's a super common superstition. And, like, I think... I was really just sort of obsessed with it through in high school and college, you know, when I was emo Zach, emo Zach. It wasn't, <laughs> yeah. I uh, also love the mountain goats. So that just seems natural. But like when I was editor of That's my high a school band, paper, not yes. actual mountain goats. No, I, I'm sure they're great, too. Uh, when I was editor of my high school paper, I did a whole like spread on the funeral industry um, hmm. where I interviewed a couple funeral home directors, our county coroner. Um, and it's just like sort of a fascinating. It was also my favorite TV show, Six Feet Under, which oh, is yeah. the okay. best of all time. Have you? What about Pushing Up Daisies? Did you watch that I didn't one? Watch that it one. was also no. good. But uh, yeah, I think conversations like these are important because yeah, it, I avoid them. Like it's really like, tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and some somehow, some way, like talking about it more, it does make it easier. I think. Yeah. Uh, so we talked to Sister Teresa about death. Uh, she not in the abstract, like yeah. our deaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's she has a very uh, interesting take on it. I would I would say she's obsessed with death, mm-hmm. which like sounds kind of weird, but like in a good Catholic way. Yes. 
weird but in a good Catholic way is a <laughs> tagline. Our new hashtag. <laughs> yes. But before right. we get to that. Yes. Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Our first story comes from Texas, where investigators with the district attorney's office in Montgomery County have executed a search warrant and raided the offices of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. Houston. And- and this archdiocese is led by Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, and he is the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And this is a big deal because he is the top U.S. bishop, and he will be representing U.S. bishops in the global meeting on sex abuse in February. Yeah, and so this investigation um, centers around allegations against um, a priest, Father Manuel La Rosa Lopez, who was accused by two people of assaulting them uh, decades ago when they were teenagers. Um, and both of these victims told the Associated Press um, that they met with Cardinal DiNardo and feel that uh, he did not take their uh, allegations seriously. Yeah, and we don't know the results of this investigation yet. Uh, so it's worth, you know, waiting for those facts to come forward. But Again, we've said this on the show over and over again. Why is it taking a government investigation to bring these facts forward? Yeah, no, there's been so much talk about transparency. But when it comes to actually being transparent, it seems like it takes state power to to make the church actually change its practices. Right. And I think maybe there is this sense that you can sort of sidestep and maybe just sort of apologize and move around, skirt around the issue. But maybe the image of the top U.S. bishop having his offices raided is going to serve as like a maybe a reminder or a newsflash like, hey, this isn't going to work anymore. Like the the old strategies are done. Yeah. No. Uh, lukewarm apologies um, and waiting around for the truth to be uncovered by the media or by uh, investigators is not going to cut it anymore. What's our next story, Olga? In a soon-to-be-published new book, Pope Francis is quoted as saying that he is worried about homosexuality in the priesthood. Yeah, this caused a lot of controversy on Twitter, and I certainly raised my eyebrow when I started reading early reports about this. Yeah, no, and it's a book on vocation. So it was specifically about um, uh, homosexuality in the context of the priesthood and seminaries. And he said that it is something that worries him um, and that This was the kind of weird part. He said uh, some societies are considering homosexuality a quote unquote fashionable lifestyle. And that's like a something he's worried about. Yeah. And he said that if, you know, someone was struggling, if if there were a gay priest struggling with their vow of celibacy, then it'd be better for them to leave the priesthood than stay in. Which the weird part is he's singling out gay priests. And obviously straight priests can also struggle with their vow of celibacy. Right. And so... There's one, one interpretation that we saw one of our colleagues offer, Father Martin, is, well, that's what the journalist asked him about gay priests, and that's why he singled, quote unquote, singled out gay priests. But definitely on the one hand, this, these comments about homosexuality being like an attractive lifestyle and that being a problem, that's just wrong and tone deaf and like definitely needs to be called out on. Right. And, and it goes against everything that we have heard from reputable psychiatrists and more importantly, it really undermines the experience of LGBT people, you know, and recently our guest last week was Juan Carlos Cruz. Um, and he told him earlier this year that God made you that way. Which Pope seemed, Francis told Juan Carlos Pope Francis this. told him this, correct, which a lot of people are saying it seems a lot closer to what he actually believes. Right. So I think between that and other statements, uh, we can kind of piece together what the Pope believes. But again, this is this is tough. And we'll wait for hopefully some clarifications on that. What's our next story, Ashley? Uh, in England and Wales, it's going to be easier to distinguish between fake and real priests because they are now getting uh, little ID cards that uh, give their credentials as priests in good standing. So I should return my Halloween costume. <laughs> 
Because I was really going to try and maybe... This is going to be your thing in no, 2019. No one was going to buy that sack. Yeah, but I was... <laughs> so wait, Ashley, why are they getting these new ID cards? Okay, so priests uh, who travel to different dioceses have to, you know, when they if they're doing a wedding at a different diocese, they have to have proof that they are an actual priest. Um, and so they have, they've traditionally had these papers that they take along with them that is signed by the bishop. And it's says, like a letter of good standing or yeah. something. Um, so this, the church in England and Wales is just kind of modernizing that process uh, with a nice little ID card. It's, yeah, it's going to be credit card size. It's going to have a scannable barcode and a photo on it. Um, so now I just need to expand my fake ID business to also issue it. <laughs> just kidding. So you're, you're CIA, I don't, CAA, I don't run a fake ID business. <laughs> just kidding. But, uh, we brought the story cause I think it's just sort of like this interesting tidbit. Like I didn't know that priests had this whole process of verifying, you know, the training that we went through, which makes sense. You know, we get yeah. college degrees and stuff. And there are like, there are fake priests. Like people will like defraud people by pretending to be a priest. Which so it is, is an terrible. important thing. Yeah. I mean, it's awful, but, but it's, this is, the story was also a good example of, you know, modernization in the church. You know, if they can do, we talk about updating things like that aren't church teaching that just need updated in the church all the time. Like, yeah. Like, uh, electronic baptismal records right now they're just paper and like if there was a fire they could be lost yep and maybe accepting venmo for church donations and doing more stuff you know texting uh <laughs> with the youths. with the youths so good on the church of england and wales what's next olga so during mass last month pope francis made some comments about consumerism he stated consumerism is a great disease today it is a lack of austerity in life and it is an enemy of generosity um, yes, he said he gave he always gives very concrete examples, which I love. He says, go to your room, count your shoes. How many do you have? One, two, three, four, 15, 20. Uh, give like half of them away because <laughs> you don't need that many shoes. And he so said he, I felt he, personally. Attacked. He said he knew, <laughs> it's not just you. He said, I knew a bishop who owned 40 pairs. <laughs> that, oh. that seems a little excessive. A, yeah. Are they a all little, black? <laughs> a little. You can only wear so many things when you're a bishop. <laughs> Maybe he plays um, basketball. But he did. He did point to a larger reality which is which we thought we'd bring up in the context of christmas time in that i think we can all get wrapped up in some of the consumerism and gift giving uh yes uh that happens this time of year um but ashley you uh wanted to stick up for well, consumerism okay. a little so, like I, yes <laughs> yes <laughs> no i want to stick up for gift giving i if Growing up in my family, it was always, we really, we loved Christmas. We got really into giving gifts. Um, and it was always instilled in us as like a way of like expressing your love for each other, which maybe, you know, there are other ways to do that. But I've always, um, you know, taken a lot of like pleasure and like really thinking about my siblings and my parents and what are they, what would they like? What would make them happy? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that detracts from the spirit of christmas if done in you know moderation yeah Olga, what do you think i think i i grew up very similar to ashley so i i my family always gave gifts and it's something that i value i love thinking oh what's my sister gonna want what's my dad gonna want and then seeing how excited people get when you open um when you open gifts uh but now that i'm engaged to enoch he grew up very different and his family didn't do gifts um so he's kind of like as i'm getting wrapped up and like i need to buy gifts i need to buy the right decorations i need to have like mistletoe over our door he's just like this is not what christmas is about and i'm like but you're taking the joy away from yeah. me and he's like no 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 like you have to think about other things during the holidays so that's kind of challenging me a little bit this year uh but what about you zach well you know as taylor swift once said uh christmas must be something more um <laughs> oh my god that was my um 
No, but I think this is, I, I think Ashley, you and Olga and Enoch are all bringing up like really good points. I think the thing that Pope Francis is sort of pointing at is like giving gifts every year, every holiday just leads to like more and more stuff. That's how you get 40 shoes, mm-hmm, right? Because right. it's not like we don't buy ourselves anything throughout the year. But I think it's, these are like really tough conversations to have, like while the stress of the holidays is already looming over, right? We're constantly bombarded with how many days are left till Christmas, how many sales are left till Christmas, how many, I'm constantly reminded uh, by the panic of not having bought all of my Christmas gifts. Uh, so I, I've, I found it helpful to try and like have these conversations before or after like the holiday set in, like how do you want to shape these traditions? How do you want to give gifts and stuff? Do a, a holiday examine afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> right. And that in, yeah. So like um, my, my, I celebrate Christmas with my dad's side of the family and we've always done like a very big gift exchange. Like all the cousins and aunts are giving each other presents and it takes like hours out of the Christmas day. And it just became, it did become more of a source of stress than joy. Um, and so this last year we actually, my dad and all of his siblings got together over many hours um, and decided that we were going to move to a white elephant Christmas. That's where everyone brings one present um, and you kind of like play a game to get get the a present you want or not um so yeah it, it happened in the context of like the group the family because you know if you want to opt out it's it's kind of hard to do that on your own right yeah you can't just on your own okay i'm not getting anyone gifts <laughs> yeah. you don't want to make that a person lot of people family. mad right yeah so i think you're bringing up a good point that like these discussions have to be had in the context of families and in cultures and we have to do it in community um yeah so listeners how are you thinking about gifts this year? Or if you don't want to think about it yet, let us know in January how, how you felt about your holiday uh, season and gift giving. Joining us on Skype is Sister Teresa Alethea. She is a religious sister with the Daughters of St. Paul and the author of Remember Your Death, Memento Mori Journal, and Remember Your Death, Memento Mori Lenten Devotional. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sister Teresa. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so first question. You began tweeting about death with the hashtag Memento Mori, which means remember you will die over a year ago. Why? So the short answer would be that it was just an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, I had read probably eight years before, before I entered the convent, that our founder, Blessed James Alberioni, kept a skull on his desk and would meditate on death. And so at the time, I thought, that's really cool. I'm going to do that at one point. But I didn't really understand the tradition in the church, and it just kind of was in the back of my mind. But so I was at annual retreat, and one of the retreat directors actually had brought a little skull for his—he traveled with it. I mean, <laughs> but when you say little skull, like plastic, uh, human, uh, animal, yeah. <laughs> you know, funnily enough, I think part of the reason people responded that, to that hashtag and that tweeting daily was because they thought I had a human skull on my desk. <laughs> my skull, or the skull on my head, is a human skull, but the skull on my desk <laughs> is ceramic. Mm. So, oh, and I actually. Okay. I just mentioned it to a sister. I said, I really want to get a skull for my desk. And she said, oh, I have one in my Halloween supplies. You're welcome to it. And I was oh, a little skeptical, but then I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a, a human skull sounds, that sounds illegal. Yeah, at definitely. Minimum. I don't know. Maybe not. Is so, that is that legal? Have a you human looked into skull? this? <laughs> it looks like you've looked into this. <laughs> 
unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I, you're like certainly on some FBI watch list for I Googling the legality behind keeping a human skull. So when I started tweeting this about this, I really didn't know a whole lot about Memento Mori, but I just said day one with a skull on my desk and a thought. And if you go back to day one, I mean, I was really not being serious at all. But after day three or so, and the reason I was doing it was so that I would actually meditate on death. And after day three or so, I just kind of, I got more serious about it and I started to get something out of it, but people were also really responding to it. And tons of people were wanting to get skulls for their desks. So, and, and at that point, one person said to me, you do have a human skull on your desk. And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) What, what do you, so when you say meditating on death, what does that, what does that look or feel like? What are you actually thinking about or picturing when you do that? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that because they're like, how do I do this? And that, like I said, that was one reason I started to tweet about it because I thought, I'm just going to put this skull on my desk and forget about it. And not really, let's be real. I have tons of things on my desk. I don't think about them every day. So how am I going to actually think about my desk? So that's why I started to tweet daily about it. And um, as I was think of a tweet to do, I would just think about my death. And at the beginning, even just thinking about my death was a very strange thing. Like we don't normally bring to mind our death throughout the day. I mean, some people have told me that that's a normal thing for them, but <laughs> I think most of us repress that thought. But honestly, I'm at the point where I, I think about it quite a lot. Um, before I make decisions, I think about it. I I just remind myself that I'm going to die before I get into a car. I think I could die, you know, at the end of this, this, this trip could not end. It could end in my death. So that sounds really morbid, but really it's changed the, the way that I approach life. And the saints encouraged us to do this. A lot of the saints talk about it. St. Ignatius talks about it a lot. He encourages people to imagine themselves on their deathbed if they're trying to make a decision. And I do that very frequently. And that's really helped me to make decisions in a completely different light than I had been before. And Sister Teresa, I know you you described it for a lot of people earlier as thinking about death could be something that's morbid. I know personally, when I think about it, it's something that completely it's it's disconcerting for me. And I know that it's a central part of our faith, um, but I still find it very hard to even think about death. Um, But why is it important for us to do that as Catholics? I think it helps us to understand the gospel message. When we think about my death is not going to end in in an abyss or nothingness. And I used to be an atheist, so that's what I used to believe. But but to be very honest, I think that's probably what I kind of believed in a way uh, years into the convent. Like, and I think a lot of Christians think about their life in that in that way. They're just not thinking about the, the end of their life and, and the afterlife. They're thinking about this life. But um, thinking about the afterlife and thinking about our death is what helps us to live this life well. Would you say that there's a a temptation to go too far in that direction, to think too much about death or have like an anxiety about death? I imagine if you're thinking about it all the time and you're afraid of your death, that's not where the gospel is. Yeah, definitely not. And I've had people, one woman asked me, she said she has a clinical condition where thanatophobia, where you're we're constantly fearful of death. And she asked me, sister, should I read your Lenten devotional and, your, and use your journal? And I was like, really, I think you should ask a professional for, uh, for guidance on that. So definitely there, 
there are certain people for whom this will not be helpful, but I would encourage people to push people who don't feel like it's something that really cripples them to push through the anxiety that they feel because we all feel anxiety around death. And, but really meditation on death is what helps us to move beyond that anxiety. And, and I'm speaking from personal experience, like the first few months of meditating on death brought up a lot of anxiety for me, but it, I've moved, it's, it's also strengthened my faith to the point where I think that my fear of death has greatly lessened and my fear of death for myself, but also for my loved ones. And I think that's really, really valuable and important, whether you're Christian or not, um, to really kind of bring death before you and meditate on it so you can get to a healthy place of acceptance. So what what is a good exercise to introduce someone to Memento Mori? You know, that that's part of the reason why I came out with the journal and the Lenten devotional, because I felt like I really wanted to help guide people in this practice. I think getting a Memento Mori for your desk or you know, some people are getting tattoos, but what, uh, whatever. Um, My college roommate had it tattooed, it, but it was only so, uh, it was backwards only. He would see it in the mirror, which I thought was kind of uh, a little much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe start Sorry, with Gordon. the, the yeah. skull on the desk before yeah. you get it. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you, you yourself had anxieties um, when you first started meditating on death. Um, what, what were they and how did, how did you work through them? It's interesting. I would probably describe it, compare it to the feeling that I felt when I was a child and and I first realized that God might not exist. Like that thought occurred to me. Um, Just kind of like the foundation kind of comes out from out of all of your belief system and your. And I I actually think that meditating on death has forces us to come to terms with our belief system. Like we believe in Jesus Christ. Do we really believe in Jesus Christ? Like at that moment when you're on your deathbed, are you really going to believe that you're going to heaven? Like it, it brings it all home. So I think for me, it was that anxiety. And I'm a naturally skeptical person. So maybe this isn't how everyone experiences it. But but it really was, does heaven really exist? It was, it was kind of like I I believe I come to the point where I believe that God exists existed but does heaven really exist and what is it and am i really going there like what so so it kind of brings up all of these existential questions and feelings that are are stressful that most people don't want to think about you've mentioned that death uh has shaped your own vocation story um what what interaction with death and what led you to kind of you know Leave, leave behind your atheism and maybe return back to Catholicism and eventually the convent? After college, I was in a program called Teach for America, and I was teaching in, in the inner city school. I was teaching third grade, and I was having a really difficult time. And in the midst of that extremely difficult year, one of my friends died. Hmm. He was climbing a, a mountain, and he fell, and he died. Hmm. And I, I remember that moment where... I, I, as I was grieving the loss of him, I also was thinking, where is he? And is he really nowhere? Because that's what I believed. And so I challenged myself to look into the different religious traditions just to understand 
what they believed, because I thought as an atheist, I should at least be, you know, educated on all of the different religious traditions. So I, I kind of started to open myself up to spirituality. I think atheists listening to me would say, oh, she was just looking for comfort. But but really, I was looking for the truth. And I hadn't I hadn't thought about it enough. And so that really started me out on on my journey of spirituality and towards my belief in God and ultimately to the convent, which I would have never guessed. <laughs> yeah, no. So you're you took a very twisting, long path uh, to get there. Uh, you, you mentioned doing Teach for America. You also worked uh, on a farm in Costa Rica and, you know, you were an atheist and then you rediscovered your faith. So looking back on on that journey, what what did advice would you give for people who are still discerning their own vocation? Really think about your death. (laughs) And that has been the most important thing for me in coming to terms with my vocation, accepting my vocation, accepting the limitations of the vocation. I think that's something that we're very Sartrean. We really want like, like the freedom to do whatever we want to do. Um, we're kind of living in that generation. And, and so I think a lot of young people have difficulty with confining themselves to any specific vocation. You know, they think about, oh, if I marry this certain person and they have children, I'm stuck in this situation. Or if I join this convent and I take vows, I'm stuck with these people for the rest of my life. Um And that's a scary thought. But when we put our lives in the context of eternity, we're able to make decisions in a completely different way. We're able to say, like, this life is not it. I want to live this life to the fullest. And part of what living this life to the fullest is, is push putting your entire self into something, not just waffling or wondering for years and years at a time, but putting your entire self into whatever vocation God is calling you to and not thinking, well, oh, I might be missing out on this or I might be missing out on this because the end of this of this journey is heaven, which is the, the biggest adventure of all. So whatever you're missing out on here, like heaven is way better than anything that we could ever be missing out on. So it's not it's that you have, you know, you have this view of eternity, which is forever, but that allows you to have a a, a realistic, finite view of your your life and your, your death, then, is what you're saying. Yeah, so many people say, sister, I don't want to meditate on my death. I want to live my life. I want to focus on my life. And I'm like, you cannot live your life if you don't meditate on your death. Hmm. Meditating on your death is what helps you to live your life to the fullest and not in the YOLO way, but in this <laughs> following God's will and following the adventure that he has planned for your life kind of way. <laughs> This has been a super interesting conversation. Um, And we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or not Catholic, who would it be and why? Well, I definitely wouldn't canonize someone living. That would be risky. (laughs) (laughs) Because who knows? I mean, with me, who knows? That's true. And kind of off-brand for you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's already on her way, but I I really will be so happy to see Dorothy Day canonized. Tell us why. For me, especially for the Catholic Church, the U.S. Catholic Church is so splintered in so many ways, and it's it's actually very painful for me to see. But as someone who has come from very diff- different points of view to um, union with the Church, I just feel like she she kind of brings it all together. Everything that's splintered in the Catholic Church, she unites it and communicates it in, in such a beautiful way. And I think she... I just think we need her intercession in heaven as a saint. 
Right. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, St. Dorothy on the way. Hopefully <laughs> she is on the way. Uh, sister, thank you so much. And mm-hmm. where can people find more about your work and your your death tweets? So um, on PursuedByTruth.com, they can buy the Memento Mori journal or pre-order the Lenten devotional. And they can find me on uh, social media at Pursued by Truth or any of our nuns if you search for the hashtag media nun. Awesome. Great. Thank, thank you. you so much thank for Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, Happy good luck Advent. with the end of school. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye. 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 All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? So someone in our Facebook group uh, posted asking uh, if they could buy the Jesuitical shirts uh, that we have on sometimes in different live events and that we also give to our Patreon supporters. And you can. Uh, You just have to head to uh, JesuitSwag.com where you can uh, buy Jesuitical t-shirts. And they're also made by... uh, the people at Homeboy Industries, which is Father Greg Boyle's uh, ministry that he runs. So they're great shirts uh, for great people, are made by great people, and hopefully worn by great, great people. Christmas present. Not a bad idea, actually, if you must buy one. <laughs> All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? I've got a consolation this week. Um, If you follow me on any social media, you might be aware that I took my dad to his very first Knicks game on Saturday. He has been a diehard Knicks fan since he was a teenager in the Dominican Republic. Um, And for his birthday, I took him and my mom to their first game at the Garden. Um, And they were so excited and so happy. They were like little kids getting candy. Um, And it was so it felt so wonderful to see them in that space. And I realized that I'm at that point in life where every all of the sacrifice that all of the sacrifices that they've made to get me to where I am, like leaving their country, paying for school. Um, I'm at that point where I can give that back to them. And just it's so consoling to be able to like show how grateful I am and show them how much I love them because they taught me how to love, you know, and through their love and through all of their sacrifice, you know, I see God in them. Um, And it was just so consoling to experience that this weekend. That's awesome. And like the best kind of giving, like it was an experience wasn't consumeristic. It was about spending time um, and giving back to your parents. It's really and, wonderful. And the Knicks got the dub. Exactly. I, I think I'm the Knicks lucky charm. I've never, they've never lost when I've gone to see them. And so. that is a Christmas miracle. If I could <laughs> so you're one. welcome. <laughs> New York Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you have, Zach? Uh, this week I have a consolation. So last week I mentioned that I felt like I couldn't ask God to uh, heal one of my close family members who's was recently diagnosed with a serious medical condition. I felt like that was a childish prayer. Um, and so I was really not allowing myself to pray where God was calling me to be, where I wanted to just be myself. Um, so this week I've just been trying to like let myself be where I am, both in my prayer life and in my uh, day-to-day things. So that's in uh, little things like just like reaching out to this person who's sick um, and talking to them and spending time with my family that's here, um, but also just letting that, prayer come from my heart and saying it to God and not necessarily expecting an answer or anything like that. But all of those things are giving me a lot of uh, peace and consolation this week and a little and some hope even. Um, whereas last week, these 
this situation was causing a lot of panic and anxiety and sudden urgency. Um, and so being myself this week is my consolation. We like you as yourself, Zach. Thanks. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, I Olga. Do. Thanks, Olga. I was like, does Olga? I do. Uh, what do you have, Ashley? I also have a consolation. Um, so I went to mass this Sunday, as I have often do. Um, and I was, I was lecturing and then, uh, it, it got to the, the communion and they were down a Eucharistic minister. So like the woman at, was like panicking and like saw me in the crowd and was like, Hey, can you come up? Can you come up? So I Eucharistic ministered. And then afterwards there was a wine and cheese hour. And I used to like, kind of like force myself to go to that, like when I wasn't really feeling extroverted, but I just, I went, I was looking forward to it. I stayed till the end. Um, and then the, there's Emily is the one who organizes those the the young adult get together um and i was talking with her as we were cleaning up and she was like you know what my favorite thing to do the best job in the church is locking the doors and turning off the lights and i was like oh that sounds fun can i go with you so i I went with her we locked up the church we like turned off all the lights and there was just like this moment when i was like standing in the middle middle of the church and all the lights were off and i was just like struck by this like really deep love for for this specific church um and my role in it and and feeling feeling like i'm needed and contributing um and not and not in a way that like it feels like a chore but like that i belong there um and i'm part of a real community um so i was just really struck by that in a profound way um and dark churches are really cool yeah not spooky <laughs> not spooky <laughs> That's a, that's an amazing. I, we do have an amazing parish, and yeah. they are lucky to have you, Ashley. Oh, thanks, Zach. Oh, we're getting all sappy this I know. week. First I we feel... held hands earlier in the show. Now we're getting sappy. Uh, I love it. Should we hold hands for the credits? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. All right, okay. Let's let's go. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Jackie McKinless, my wonderful sister. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Teos3246, MH Cav, and Jen Grabert. And you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. And here's to hoping that our engineer, Kieran, does not go on strike because we didn't pick his adverbs. <laughs> we still have one week left before our Christmas break. Well, I now, was, now I feel like you have to pick. I was say going something to. Like that. Uh, Advantageously, it's brilliant. <laughs> oh man, you guys, I feel so close with you.